This is episode number 64, Normalize, with Adam McCormick. Welcome, my name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, struggle, and obstacles in achieving your fullest potential. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to make a brief announcement and invite all of our listeners to our upcoming seminar on June 15th in Austin, Texas. A seminar where you will get a chance to hear stories from three different speakers, Joshua Banks, Tanya Tuck, and myself included, on different elements of belonging, the relationship that you have with yourself, the relationship that you have with your community. In addition to hearing the speakers, you'll also get a chance to connect with other people within the room who are going through a similar journey that you are. For more information, please go to overcomingodds.today forward slash where do you belong now let's get back to our guest i asked what are marginalized populations he said there are populations that for some reason or another are really on the margins of society oftentimes it has to do with their racial identity gender sexual orientation that we as society, for different reasons, place them on the margins. A lot of the work that I try to do is give a voice to those experiences so that we can better recognize some of the disparities, challenges, and some of the obstacles in discrimination or oppression that they might experience. But also, recognize that for all of these populations, given what they have to go through in terms of the challenges the discrimination, and the marginalization. They are populations that, despite all the challenges, are populations with far more resilience. Without further ado, please welcome Adam McCormick. Welcome back to another episode of the Overcoming Outs podcast. Today's guest is a good friend of mine. His name is Adam McCormick. He's a professor here at St. Edwards University specializing in foster care, LGBTQ, and other what we call special population initiatives. So I wanted to bring him onto the show and share as much as he can about his experience in learning about all of these different groups and how they're viewed in today's world. So Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Oleg. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Absolutely. So I want to start this off by really just answering this question, and that is, what are the special populations, and why are they termed like that? Yeah, so some of the populations that I work with and some of the research that I do, um, uh, they're populations that, for some reason or another, are really on the margins of society, that um, oftentimes it has to do with their identity, racial identity, or their gender, uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, that we as a society for... Uh, different reasons place them on 
the margins. And, and a lot of the work that I try to do is to try to give a voice to some of those uh, experiences so that we can better recognize some of the disparities and some of the challenges and some of the obstacles and discrimination and oppression that they might uh, experience, but also to give a voice to recognize that for all of these populations, given what they have to go through in, uh -huh. in terms of the challenges and in, in the discrimination and the marginalization, that they are populations that, despite those challenges, um, are populations with far more resilience than mm -hmm. even risk. And so a lot of the work that I try to do is more qualitative in interviewing them and giving a voice to some of their stories and some of their experiences. So it's really interesting that you say that because over the past couple of weeks, it, as I got to know you and the work that you started to do, I started to look more at our mission. And one of the things that we've noticed is that through our message, we're not only catering to those who've been adopted or in foster care, but also a lot of these other groups like refugees, immigrants, people who have overcome traumatic experiences. And so when I came across your work and this term that you used, I believe it's actually on St. Edward's website as, as part of your research or the background, was special populations. And I was like, I got to have this conversation to really understand what are they. And the follow-up question that I have to what you just said is, how do people, based on your research, how do people view themselves when they are referred to as special populations? Yeah, you know, I think I, I think there's some challenges to that. And in, in part of what I want to emphasize is, is in my work with them is to help uh, to really normalize some of their experiences and to really kind of externalize that, you know, that many of the challenges that they face, whether it's youth in foster mm -hmm. care, whether it's LGBTQ youth, whether it's refugee or migrant youth, um, that these are populations that face those challenges because of the actions and the intolerance of others. Mm. And so, um, and, I, and I think, you know, that's really kind of embedded in, in my training as a social worker. That's one of the first things that we, that we learn is that we have to help populations who are on the margins, whether it's for their identity, whether their experience, or the documentation status, whatever it might be, right. to help them to recognize that they're on the margins for reasons and actions and behaviors and attitudes of um, others. So part of the work, part of what I try to do in, in developing rapport, but also in, in, in how I design my studies and in, in really everything that I try to do as a social worker and as a researcher is to help make it, mm -hmm. to make it clear and to better um, convey that message to those populations and those individuals who will be working with the populations that I work with, again, whether it's migrant refugee youth, whether it's LGBTQ youth in foster care, whether it's kids in foster care, and, mm -hmm. and, and you know, which is why I've been so passionate about your mission uh -huh. uh, with Overcoming Odds, is that I, I think that you really do that with youth in foster care, and we historically haven't seen them yeah. as a population uh, on the margins, and we don't include youth in foster care, youth who have aged out of foster care, alumni of the foster care system, or adoptees, as uh, being one of those groups, and I think we're slowly starting to see that. I read a story uh, uh, over the weekend. Sesame Street character was a, <laughs> a, a kid. Uh, was was one of the, one of their new? I guess it's a puppet uh, is going to be a kid who's in foster care. Um, right. And so I think the more that we do that, the more that we talk about these populations, the more that we give voice uh, to their experiences, the more that we can normalize their experiences, uh, the less stigma in the less marginalization we're going to see. Uh -huh. You bring up a really good point, and that is just normalizing this whole experience. So the thing that I've been curious about is with this word special before the population, like, is there another word that we can use to possibly describe that? Because when you think about it in today's day and age, special means, to, at least to my knowledge, preferential. Right. Some sort sure. of preferential treatment. You're somehow 
not necessarily better than you know the the other people at hand, but your experience is slightly elevated compared to mine because sure. I'm not referred to as special. So, is there another term to use to describe some of these groups? Yeah, I, I, the the term I always use is populations on the margins because I think you're absolutely right. When we say special populations, then it becomes easy for uh, somebody to suggest that you're trying to give preferential treatment. I've, I've experienced that a lot in trying to advocate for LGBTQ youth in foster uh-huh. care, that when you start to talk about different policies and different practices, knowing that what we've historically done has created all of these disparities in, 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 in maltreatment experiences and in placement disruptions and over-reliance on group homes, these, these huge disparities, when you start talking about how those practices and those policies don't work for LGBTQ youth, uh-huh. one of the quick arguments that you get from lawmakers um, and from other even child welfare workers is, well, we can't treat them special we can't have special policies and practices well that's not what anybody's asking for just for that specific yeah it's it's really more about looking specifically at the experiences of these groups who have historically and continue to be marginalized Mm -hmm. and create efforts whether they be policy changes or practice uh, interventions that specifically address the challenges that they face again because of the structural and systemic practices and policies that have historically yeah. marginalized them. Gone on from one yeah. generation to another. Yeah, absolutely. Now, take me a t- step back and help me better understand and some of the other people that are listening. How did you get into this field to begin with? Because I'm assuming this is not something you just stumble across while at a coffee shop and like, hey, this seems like a cool job to do for my next 10 to 20 years. Yeah. That, what <laughs> triggered and inspired a lot of this work that you're doing right now? Uh, yeah, so I was um, I was a, a social work major back in college and really had no idea what I wanted to do and wasn't even sure if that was the right major for me. And I took a, a job, uh, just a part-time college job as a direct care counselor at a children's home working mm-hmm. with kids uh, in an emergency shelter. So these were kids who were just removed from uh, their parents. And, I, and within probably uh, a week of having that job, it was clear to me that this was going to be the field that I'd work the rest of my life. And I, I certainly plan to work in this field for the rest of my life. And um, so I, I worked in that shelter uh, for a couple of years. And then my wife and I actually took a job as live-in house parents uh, for teenage boys uh, okay. in, in the foster care system in West Texas. And we did that for a couple of years and really um, loved that work. And after finishing college and went on to graduate school uh, and got an MSW and worked as a social worker and administrator. Uh-huh. Um, and then uh, through the course of that work, uh, it was there were a couple of experiences that I had uh, in, w- in which I witnessed just some clear discrimination against LGBTQ youth here in the Texas foster care system. Uh-huh. Uh, and I decided at that point that um, I was really going to focus my research on trying to create a more inclusive uh-huh. uh, system and have really over the last, uh, especially over the last 10 years or so, been working uh, on trying to better capture the experiences of LGBTQ youth in the foster care system, but more so to use those experiences to try to advocate for better policies and practices. What were some of those instances that you just mentioned yeah. that kind of triggered a lot of this? Um, certainly a lot of discrimination that they experienced in their placements from their foster parents. Uh, and, and a lot of it had to do with you know just realizing early on that many of these LGBTQ youth were placed in group homes and foster homes in which the caretakers really had no idea how to create an affirming home Mm. and an accepting home. 
uh, for them. So you saw a lot of kids who uh, just, you know, were many of them separated from their parents or ran away f- from homes where there was rejection or hostility came into the foster care system and experienced more rejection from foster parents and caretakers who uh-huh. uh, either weren't willing to provide affirmation and acceptance or, or just didn't know how uh, to do that. So a lot of placement breakdowns, kids bouncing from one home to another, a lot of kids going into really restrictive placements, residential treatment centers and, and group homes with 10 or 12 other kids uh, in situations where they really didn't need that they would have been much better off mm-hmm. with a family, a traditional foster family. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, CPS couldn't find those placements for them. So after witnessing uh, uh, several of those experiences as a social worker, I decided I would do some more research to to see what we could do, what I could do to help get a better sense of what those experiences look like for them and what we can do as a child welfare system, as a foster care system, to create a more inclusive system. It's a very interesting position that you are in because you're strictly on the end of research and you're, you're kind of sitting and analyzing all the problems and then coming up with, well, here are the possibilities to a potential problem, kind of ways to tackle it. What I learned over time is that there's so many organizations that exist when it comes to any problem. And the quick, the typical thing is to quickly jump to a solution at a hand and it's not really well thought out, thought out. And then you get to a point where it's like, oh, I might have just created the bigger problem <laughs> that was there at, at, to begin with. So I think in your case, it's, Interesting to hear your perspective of someone who is able to see all these overarching problems and then categorize them and say, well, here's what's actually happening and here are the possible ways to tackle it. Not necessarily education being the end of the road as far as solving a lot of these because there's so much that comes to you know with that. Like I was just recently writing a chapter of my book in which I spoke about my parents. And to be honest with you, and it wasn't until this year that I really started to look at my parents and even the labels they um, define as their roles, like my mom and dad. When I first came here, I, I think part of me just kind of accepted that role. I didn't really understand what role they needed to be. So I can't even, I can't even imagine going into a family, a temporary home, for however long. I mean, it could, it could be a day, some could be a year, whatever the time frame is, and no one knows what the role is. Yeah. And so you're you're in this unknown for however long. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, I think we we see that with kids in foster care in particular, but I think there are, you know, added vulnerabilities to that exact dynamic for uh-huh. uh LGBTQ youth uh in care. That that those roles, those boundaries become um very blurred. And I think a lot of the the challenges that that we have are who we recruit as mm. caretakers and where we yeah. go to recruit that it, uh, there's a recent study that came out uh, about a month ago maybe maybe a little longer than that uh, a researcher Stephen Russell at the University of Texas uh, and he found that one in three teenagers in the t- in the foster care system uh, it has an LGBTQ uh, identity uh, you know we have to be very intentional about who we go out to recruit you know in, in, if, if we know to that we have such yeah yeah to be representative in um, in not not necessarily suggesting that we you know we need to have absolute representation when it comes to sexual orientation or gender identity, but at least go out and find caretakers and potential foster parents who we know 
can provide a home where these young people are going to be accepted, uh, who can provide a home where they recognize that those roles, what, the, what their roles are um, as caretakers for a population who have this added vulnerability or marginalization, uh-huh. uh, especially in a state like Texas. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think when it comes to youth in foster care, that's, um, and, and, and their caretakers, their, their, their foster parents or their social workers that, that having very clearly defined roles and as those roles shift and change, um, uh, being well aware uh, of that is, is absolutely essential. Uh-huh. It, it's also a bit a challenge to be able to find people like that because so much of that comes from your personal level of whether or not you've embraced that role. For example, I, I can't necessarily relate to LGBTQ or some of the other communities that you mentioned, but I can relate to the fact when I wasn't, I didn't feel comfortable with certain things. Age was a big problem for me. So be, when I came here, I was 12 years old and I was put in sixth grade instead of seventh grade. And one of the things that ended up happening for me was this struggle with a lot of my fellow classmates who in in middle school and in high school you find those things to pick at because that's just you don't know who you are and so as part of that figuring out process you pick on other kids and you make jokes and stuff like that and so one of the jokes that I was constantly being um, told was this joke about my age how I was older therefore I was held back but really that wasn't the case it's just I came here at a different time from a different country but you're not given the time in that yeah. moment to explain all of that to a kid who's just the same exact age as you are. So a lot of it comes from kind of embracing your own identity yeah. with something like what you just said, finding people who can relate on a lot of those experiences. So the question that I have that comes to mind is how do people view this currently in the society? And how can people better understand some of these groups to not only help like the general population better understand them, but also those that are identifying themselves as part of those populations to better embrace their roles. Yeah, yeah. And I and I think that's what's so important for, for us as advocates and as 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 social workers and policymakers, uh, uh, especially those who are on the front line. So much of what we need to do is to help to normalize those experiences to for whatever popular population it is, whether it's migrant, refugee, youth, let's create, help to create an affirming and empowering community for those young people, even if it's a smaller community, other uh-huh. people who they can relate their experiences to, they can develop, you know, they, they, they can see some mutual experiences with, as well as a community of other people, especially if some of those other people have a little bit more power, have a little bit more privilege, a little bit more voice, who are going to be very affirming um, of them to help normalize some of those experiences to create that safety for them. I, we've definitely seen that um, for uh, LGBTQ youth in the foster care system. I mean, uh-huh. if, you, if we were having this interview 10 years ago, this interview <laughs> would look a lot different. But, you know, there have been shifts and changes in society where we now have uh, more Americans who support equality for LGBTQ uh-huh. uh, young people uh, than those who don't. Um, and I think, again, part of our job as advocates, part of our job as, as social workers and, and allies is to kind of tap into that change and, and, and really uh, capitalize on that, those shifts and those changes in acceptance, um, in, 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 especially in fields like the child welfare 
field or in schools where change hasn't been quite as quick and it hasn't been maybe as pronounced as we see with older uh, populations. The child welfare system tends mm-hmm. to be one of the slowest systems to change mm-hmm. when it comes to LGBTQ youth, when it comes to racial uh, disproportionality and disparities. That's a system where we, although attitudes in society may have shifted and changed, we still see glaring disparities in experiences. Do you, do you have any those. idea why? You know, I, I, when it comes to, to, to LGBTQ youth, I think a lot of it has to do with um, how historically we've, where we've gone for resources. Like in a, in a state like Texas, we've historically gone to more rural areas. We've gone, we've recruited caretakers through churches and more religious, uh, conservative um, uh, religious uh, communities. So a huge portion of our workforce mm. um maybe have theological beliefs or personal beliefs that are at odds with acceptance mm-hmm. uh, and affirmation. I, I think you can m- maybe argue the same when it comes to uh, some of the racial disparities we see. I think our workforce, this is another one where, uh, especially when it comes to uh, racial disparities in the foster care system, our workforce doesn't necessarily represent um, the populations that we serve. So sometimes there's some bias, uh, uh-huh. unintended bias, subconscious bias in some of the decisions that, that we make. Uh, and I think you can make the same arguments for um, kids in school when we look at, you know, things like rates like, uh, um, you know, black children are still suspended from school at three mm-hmm. times the rate as Minorities. white children. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Hispa- uh, Latinx kids are still uh, expended and expelled at a much higher rate. Uh, than than white students that you know are, there are representation uh, issues there, but there's also just subconscious, unconscious bias things that we're not aware of in um, uh, making decisions, uh, mm-hmm. whether they be decisions about consequences, decisions about placement for kids uh, in foster care, decisions about whether or not a kid should go home with their parents or be removed from their parents. There are all of these elements that uh, we don't think about that are subconscious in how we make those decisions um, that we have to keep working on and helping make folks uh, aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the things I teach my students, uh, and sometimes they like it and sometimes they don't like it, um, <laughs> is that uh, if you're like me, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm a person whose identity brings them a lot of privilege and a lot of power, um, you know, I haven't had to deal with racial discrimination. I haven't had to deal with gender discrimination. I haven't had to deal with discrimination related to my sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, that if you're like me and you have not had those experiences in life, um, that you have to be aware of uh, some of the bias and some of some of the ways that um, not having those experiences, not having to deal with those, uh, and not knowing what it's like to deal with those, um, you know, not being, uh, you know, a former foster youth or an ad- adoptee, that, that you have to recognize uh, uh-huh. uh, that sometimes that's going to impact how we make decisions. Um, and like I said, sometimes students eat it up and they like it and they can recognize it. And sometimes there's a little bit of pushback and that's okay. That's why we have dialogue and we have yeah. conversations. Like, yeah. So. Tell me a little bit about how you mentioned this aspect of being able to build communities. I'm a huge believer in the way that I try to build a community is you, you start with what you know, but then you got to be able to expand because it's through other, really through other people's perspectives that you're able to enhance that community and then allow those who may feel like they haven't had a community or once they step out of it, like now what, who are the people that I relate to? That's how you're able to connect. What are some of the methodologies or principles that you guys go off of in building some of these communities for 
some of these groups that you guys focus on? Yeah, you know, I think I think so much of it. Again, I, there's this podcast had a theme. It would be it would be this is is just to normalize uh, experiences. I think uh, with a lot of populations, especially uh, you know, if you take a, take example, kids in foster care. I think what I hear a lot from kids in foster care who have specific challenges, maybe related to their identity, maybe it's their racial identity, maybe it's their, their sexual orientation, maybe it's maybe it's even related to, you know, challenges that they face become of, because of some of their behavioral or emotional needs, uh-huh. is that they, they feel almost alone, like there's no one else out there who's going through what they're going through, when the reality is we know that there are a whole bunch of young yeah. people uh, who are dealing with many of those same challenges. So I, I think a lot of the work that we have to do is to help normalize those experiences by helping connect those people. Um, uh, with others who have had some of the same challenges, especially if those challenges are more external, right? That 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 it's not your fault that you're in the foster care system because your parents couldn't accept that you mm. were gay or lesbian. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's it, you know, it's not your fault um, that you know you're in the foster care system because somebody else did something bad or made a really bad decision. Um, because what, what we know happens is, especially with kids and especially with teenagers and, and, and small kids, is, is if we don't clearly make that distinction, if we don't help them to externalize and recognize that I'm in this situation because a bad thing happened to me. All right? mm-hmm. Somebody did something bad to me or, or you know, my parent made uh, a bad decision or my parent had you know, a disease or an illness or, or a substance or, you know something else going on or, or, you know, my parents couldn't accept my sexual orientation or gender identity, that if we don't clearly externalize that and help them to recognize that they're facing this adversity or in this situation for reasons outside of their control, Mm -hmm. that they tend to internalize that. And then that becomes, what we know is that that not only does that kind of become a reality for them, that there's something that I did to deserve this or something I didn't do to deserve this and that becomes internalized, mm-hmm. then what we know is that, that slowly kind of becomes a part of their identity. identity. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I think so much of what we have to do, and I, and I do think the best way to do that is through community and, and through creating these opportunities for young people to connect with other people who've had some of these same experiences mm-hmm. so that they can better recognize, hey, this isn't my fault, right? I can control how I respond to this, right? Mm-hmm. In, 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 in try to create change and create opportunity and, and rely on, you know, the social support systems that I have. Uh, but I think it's so critical for us to be able to provide them with the opportunity to recognize that it's not their fault mm-hmm. that they're in this situation, that there are these other factors, whether, you know, you know whether it be the family rejection or, or trauma or, or you know, racism or you know policies at the border whatever it might be you know something going on in Guatemala or El Salvador um, structural systemic stuff that ultimately it's not their fault that yeah. they're in this situation and, and I and I truly believe that the best way to do that is to help create those networks and those communities where they can see someone Make else it relatable yeah, through another yeah. person's experience yeah and I think we have the obligation as advocates social workers uh, to create those opportunities and mm-hmm. those connections and those networks and communities for them. I love that because so when, when I was in high school, I remember I was sitting in front of one of my teachers and I was sharing this whole experience with her and kind of the action steps that I wanted to take with this particular journey. And the exact words I used was that it was an obligation for me 
to give back through that lived experience. Yeah. And I think it, it it's so true for any experience that you've had in your life. If you've developed courage to stand up for yourself, whether that's at home, in the workplace, wherever it may be, if you have found ways to do X, Y, and Z, I've always believed that it's your duty to help other people to do the same thing. Share your talents. There's no point of hiding them. You've already discovered what works for you. So why not allow other people tap into a similar journey of their own through the ways that you've been able to get into yours? Yeah. Yeah, I think probably the, the, the foster system, there's no better example uh, of that. You know, for decades, we've had the, you know, quote unquote experts making decisions on what we should be doing as a system. Uh, very rarely have those worked out well for, for kids and families. It's not until recently where we've had these huge kind of grassroots efforts of mm -hmm. youth in foster care and alumni in foster care uh, of, of all sorts of, of, of populations uh, uh, who have come together, shared their experiences, started to share their expertise and insight. Now, they've always wanted to share that. They just weren't given the opportunity mm -hmm. uh, to do that. And now we're starting to see, some, especially at the federal level, uh, some policies that where it's evident that we're starting to hear what they say, but also starting to recognize, yeah, there's a lot of expertise and a lot of insight in the, clearly these young people, based on their experiences and they're willing to speak up and their courage to speak up uh, and share their insight are starting to create some of the solutions, starting to create some of the, the changes that we've needed for a long time. And I hope that's a trend that we continue to see for a long time. Uh, and, and I think that goes for a lot of, a lot of different fields. I know just, I, I can only speak for the field that I work in, but uh, if we, if you think of some of the, I think most exciting and most effective big policy changes and practice changes that we've seen in the last five to 10 years, uh -huh. uh, all of those have come from these grassroots efforts of youth and alumni of the foster care system speaking up and saying, this is what this change needs. This is what our experiences look like. Mm -hmm. Here's why it's not okay. And here's what it should look like. And as we listen to that, we start to put that into practice, put that into policy. I think as a system, we're starting to see the benefits. I love that because you are spot on. I mean, it, it, that applies to every group. When you can put a group in a position of power, and let them understand that this is these are the strengths, yeah. And you're not a victim to some of the cases that you mentioned, such as you know your parents did X, Y, and Z. Well, that's that's outside of you. Right. You don't understand the circumstances that they were facing. So, I think when you put positions like that in a place of strength and allow them to understand, okay, so here are all the things that happened to you, but what did you get out of that? What are the lessons learned? How is it making is it making you a better person moving forward? And that's where I think you can have some serious grassroots, I mean, campaigns, initiatives that come up from that, that allow better people to understand. Well, I viewed this system like this before, but really look at all the skills that you can gain out, gain out of that journey and experience. Sure. Yeah. I absolutely. I and I think we see that with populations on the margins uh, all the time. That. In, in, and I teach this to my students all the time. You know, when, when, when a family navigates extreme poverty, uh, almost every time they develop a skill set and a level of resilience and insight uh, in surviving that we as, 
as advocates, we as social workers have to be able to tap into, that the, yeah. these are individuals who offer us so much, not just in terms of insight, but in, ten, in terms of courage and resilience and resourcefulness. It's the human and we, Yeah, we have to be able to, to truly empower somebody to be able to, 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 to capture that and to recognize that. And it's absolutely the case with, with kids in foster care, kids who have endured trauma, LGBTQ young people who have navigated you know, family rejection at home or in the school or in the foster care system, that these are populations that have far more resilience than they do risk. And we really have an obligation. I like that, that, that terminology or that, that we have an obligation to really recognize that and, uh-huh. and to be able to interpret and recognize where that's coming from and to tap into that. Now, this is an aspect that I, I wouldn't say I rec- necessarily recommend to most people, but what I've learned about my own experience is that if you don't understand something, go out there and get it. Yeah. So go out there and find that experience for yourself. You do, if you don't know what it's like to be poor, well, for, face yourself with some adversity. Go buy a new vehicle. Go buy a, put a down payment on the house, which you can't necessarily afford, but like you, you going to have to find ways to make those payments to complete that goal. So is that a similar mindset that you might live your life by? And if not, like how would you recommend that some of these um, people in this particular profession of social workers and policymakers can get that lived experience if they haven't had that firsthand? Sure. Well, I, I would begin by, by really challenging them to listen to the experiences of people who are on the mm-hmm. margins. I think, I think we, we strong as, as a society, just in general right now, you know, if I, if I were giving us a grade as a society <laughs> and our, our, our willingness to listen to the experiences of other people, you know, it would probably be a C, uh, you know, we're not, we're not, uh, it's still passing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's still passing. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's a little, that's a, that's a little too generous. Um, you know, we, we, we have to listen to the experiences, you know, when we have, you know, women telling us that uh, they constantly experience fear and threat. Um, like, we have to listen to that, right? We have to hear that. When we have, you know, people of color telling us their lived experiences and their fears that they have, whether it relates to, to mass incarceration or the criminal justice system or, you know, uh, you know walking down the streets um, uh, at night. Like, we have to listen to what uh, they're saying, uh, and I think that's where we where we have to start is to to listen and in 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 believe the experiences of those people uh, on the margins, um, and I think when we look at good policy and we good we look at good practice, it's it's come from those efforts where we truly genuinely listened and believed the experience of these different populations on the margins. If this is what you're dealing with, this is what you're experiencing, and kind of put that into to practice. So I would say we we have to start um, by just hearing people out and listening to what they have to say. Uh-huh. And then I am a big fan on in anything that's going to be uh, experiential to the point where my students would complain about it um, all the time. <laughs> we do, we, you know, we do a lot of simulation stuff in class. We do a lot of uh, casework in class where I'll, you know, have them navigate a situation. We do poverty simulations. We do survivor, domestic violence, survivor uh, uh, simulations, trafficking, survivor simulations uh, to try the best that we can to put them uh to give them the reality of somebody who has to navigate this world where um, they're faced with so many obstacles and, and so many challenges. Um, so yeah, I'm a big, uh, a big fan of, of really encouraging Experience. students and, 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 and professionals and advocates to really get out there and do the best that they can to try to put themselves in the shoes of someone else. Those who have lived through that experience. Yeah. That makes sense. Final thought for today's episode, and that is... Who or what are you grateful for today? 
Oh gosh, uh, so many things. My family, uh, you know, my wife, uh, Crystal, and I, have, uh, we're, we're about to have our uh, 20th anniversary uh, this year. We got married when we were uh, young, almost teenagers. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for uh, the reality that I've been able to grow up with, with uh, you know, my best friend and, and, and partner, and we get to work together and do similar work um, and get along. I have five kids uh, as well who I am incredibly grateful for. Um, uh, but I'm also grateful for uh, the mentors that I've had mm-hmm. along the way. I've had incredible teachers uh, who have given me opportunities, who have um, uh, been advocates for me, some who continue today uh, to be advocates for, for me, to, to help me, to seek out opportunities, to help kind of showcase uh, some of the work that I've done. Um, and I'm very grateful, uh, uh, very thankful for uh, those, those opportunities and those relationships. That's amazing. How do people stay in touch with you? How do what are some of the things that you have coming up regarding projects or research based initiatives? Sure. That uh, yeah, uh, I've got a new book uh, that should be coming out sometime in the fall uh, that looks at um, uh, some of the the practices, best practices for foster parents of LGBTQ okay. uh, youth. So um, that should be coming out uh, in the fall. I'm doing a lot of work on uh, boyhood and masculinity and the relationship between uh, kind of hyper forms of masculinity and mental health, uh, depression and suicide amongst boys and teenagers. Yeah. Okay. Um, so certainly be on the lookout for some of that. Uh, I didn't see the correlations into law, but it makes sense. Oh, sure. See a yeah. Lot of relationships between those topics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, and I've just started this research probably just going on two years now. And Especially it's been, absence it's of fathers and how that plays a role on you as a, a male yeah you bet yeah yeah i mean just a just a society where there's so much going on internally for boys and young men uh and so few outlets and opportunities and and really a a culture where we don't uh create a safe space for for young men and boys to express what's going on inside Uh you know really anything outside of anger um is not socially acceptable uh it's it's you can't express fear you can't express you know sadness vulnerability. or vulnerability at all yeah so um um yeah i'm really kind of diving into some of that work and, and it, it, it's exciting work but certainly um uh, been eye-opening uh, as well awesome well thank yeah. you so much thanks so much Alex. i appreciate it take care thanks for having me Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest episodes and ways you can be involved with Overcoming Odds. Once again, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you next week.